Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. Week in Health Innovation on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director at Health Innovation Media, the executive producer of This Week in Health Innovation, and your humble host and conversational servant today. On the show, I'm geeking out over the opportunity to speak with someone that I've known for the better part of, generically speaking, the Health 2.0 era arguably the time in our history that's witnessed the rise of the internet, the convergence of technology with the increasing role and interest of patients or consumers engaging in their health via more informed choice, if not as a principle in certain enlightened team-based care models, all while the cost of healthcare continues to threaten the health of our nation and many of our personal finances. Jane is someone with whom I resonate on on many levels, from health policy, the economics of our failing healthcare delivery and financing system, which I call a burning platform, or the healthcare borg, uh, and as a trusted peer in the social media content creation and curation world, and I'm honored to call her a friend. According to her bio, Jane is a health economist who believes that health is a person's most valuable asset, something very hard to argue with. Her mother and father taught Jane this fundamental value. Her mother, Polly, was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma in 1971. There was no internet to consult. There was a doctor who fortuitously, i.e. the luck of the draw, was uh, just the sort of partner, was just the sort to partner with a patient and be open to the latest clinical research. There was also a librarian, a close friend of her mom, who helped Polly dig up health information via the good old Dewey Decimal System, (laughs) microfiche, and the unwieldy tomes of Index Medicus. (laughs) Two nutrition books informed Jane's mom's approach to personal health management. Adele Davis's Let's Eat Right to Keep Fit and Let's Get Well. Empowered by knowledge, trust in a good doctor, and buoyed by the abundant love of her family and friends, Polly beat a six-month death sentence and lived an additional seven years beyond the doctor's original prognosis. After her death in 1979, Jane made the personal and professional choice to study public health and economics at the University of Michigan, Go Blue. She spent the last two decades advising the vast array of healthcare stakeholders in the United States and Europe, including providers, payers, technology companies, foundations, non-government organizations, NGOs, life sciences companies, financial services, consumer goods, public sector, and other players. Most recently, 
Jane has produced what is likely to become an authoritative piece in the evolving consumer health space with a broad vision that makes an important distinction between consumption of health care versus the role of a health literate empowered health citizen with certain rights and obligations, which we'll hear about shortly. As I, I prepared for this interview, I queried both citizen and consumer and found on dictionary.com and Wikipedia respectively the following. A citizen is a native or naturalized member of a state or nation who owes allegiance to its government and is entitled to the protection thereof. It's also an inhabitant of a city or town, especially one entitled to its privileges and franchises. Whereas a consumer is a person who purchases goods and services for personal use or a person or thing that eats or uses something. (laughs) So I believe we have Jane with us right now. Uh, Jane, that with that oversimplified and somewhat butchered framing of the book's narrative, uh, let me turn to you. Uh, but before we begin, tell our audience a little bit more about you than what I read from a truncated version of your bio on the Health Popular blog. Jane? Oh, my. I'm here. <laughs> Great. <laughs> good, to, good to see you. I was wondering. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually on in two places. So let me okay. uh, g- get off of one. Can you hear me? I can. I can hear Great. you. Great. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you. Just technology challenge today. Great on digital health, not so great on telecoms. Um, right. So, uh, yeah. I have a nearly 30-year journey starting as a young, healthy economist, went to University of Michigan, and all I've ever done since graduate school is work across the health ecosystem, uh, starting with hospitals and the legacy system, doctors and tech. And then I had a great learning curve when I moved to London with my husband and got to work in the National Health Service when Deloitte was called Touche Ross and uh, worked in the NHS and in the private sector. So that's where I really cut my teeth on the role of health and even health information tech. Because even then in the early 90s, the National Health Service, which was spending 4.5%, of GDP on health, those were the days, um, they had to measure so they could manage health care to a budget. Anyway, that's really where I really fell in love with tech for health. And then uh, when I came back to the States, it was the early days of the Internet. And the rest is history because now I'm working at the convergence of the net, uh, people, um, health, and uh, increasingly care at home, self-care. So anyway, that's the uh, abstract cliff note version. Excellent. So I'm looking at your uh, part one blog post on the Health Populi blog, and I love this line. I These words have often uh, 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 been uttered by yours truly. It's deja vu in healthcare all over again, but 35 years later. So if we sort of ratchet back 35 years, I think we were looking at GDP around – Seven, eight percent. Yeah, and, and that's here exactly we are. Right. <laughs> and here we are, you know, at close to seventeen, maybe eighteen percent. You know, we haven't seen the most recent uh, numbers from CMS, but uh, 
here we are today. Uh, and now you've got this, what I think may become a very authoritative piece in this involving consumer health space, which has been created. Now, this is my perspective. I don't know if you agree, but it's been, been created by, in essence, what I've called the cost-shifting charade. And the cost-shifting uh. cost charade is simply the business model of prevailing third-party payer insurance in the United States. It, in my opinion, is the tacit admission of major health insurance companies to manage clinical risk. So as a result, they've pushed most of the cost burden onto the patient through increasing deductibles, co-payments, and co-insurance. And unfortunately, perhaps this is one of the downside legacies of the Affordable Care Act, because in exchange for increased coverage, what they started to do is push a lot of the cost-sharing burden onto the patient. So let's talk a little bit about technology, your vision of this health citizen versus a health consumer, and just sort of walk through it. I mean, your chapters are great. We're all consumers now. The patient is payer. How Amazon has primed health consumers, their new retail health. Where do you want to start? Let's tick through this, Jane. Yeah, let's go uh, in the plot line. So the backstory here is that this book was over 500 pages two months before the 2016 presidential election. And when I was talking to a New York City publisher with a big name, he said, let's wait a couple months and see who wins the election before we uh, sign on. So we <laughs> waited, and guess what? The original book was talking about tweaking the ACA and getting to universal health care. Well, of course, that wasn't going to happen. Uh, and, in fact, I didn't have the tagline from health consumer to health citizen at that point. A couple things happened to me. Um, I took some time off from the book to figure out whether repeal and replace would really happen. Obviously, over a few months, it didn't happen. And then in April 2017, I spent most of the month in Italy because I became an Italian citizen through yeah. my husband. So I became, therefore, a health citizen of the EU, and I became covered eventually by the GDPR, Privacy Regulation, over uh, in Europe, as European citizens are covered by. They don't have a patchwork quilt like we have with HIPAA and GINA and COPA and any number of privacy pieces of a quilt. So long story short, in Italy, I'm in Florence at the Laurentian Library with Robert, Roberto, my husband, and I happen upon an exhibit talking about the Renaissance person in Italy as health citizen. And I come into this concept thinking about food and taking care of oneself for the benefit of each other in the community. So a citizen has rights and a citizen has responsibilities. And it gave me a whole new voice. Thank you, President Trump, who said, who knew that healthcare would be so complicated. Well, Greg, <laughs> you and I knew uh, because we've been working at this for a long time. And as you said earlier, we've known each other for well over a decade if, and longer. So the long story short is we got to the title, From Health Consumer to Health Citizen, 
because I now am bipolar when it comes to health care. I can get free health care, quote unquote, in Europe when I'm there and I am covered by privacy. Say I use Facebook over there. I have a different relationship with Facebook in Europe than I have in the U.S. or Google because there I'm covered by GDPR. So I came back to the U.S. in May, renewed, um, and really turbocharged the writing of the book. And like Michelangelo emerged carving the slave out of the big piece of marble, I took the 500 pages and trimmed it down to 188 for the essence of what is the book now with 519 footnotes. Because if I'm anything, I'm evidence-based with that hard economic head. So we start then on that journey that you talked about uh, at time zero, which is where we are today in real time. And that is we are all health consumers, and I don't say that's a good thing or a bad thing. I say it's a real thing because we are paying first-dollar coverage now, those of us with high deductibles and growing coinsurances, et cetera. You called it a charade, um, a financial charade, risk charade. I'm going to call it a financial, financial risk shift. So we're shifting, as you're talking about the risk, from the original payors, uh, plans and employers, to the individual, and now consumer because we have to be mindful that it's our money. It was our money before, but now it's much more transparently, or I should say more viscerally, our money. So we move from the reality of being consumers into the second chapter, which is called the patient is the payer. And as a payer, we start to expect retail style delivery because after all, we're paying, we're the customer, right? Well, we learn in that chapter from a lot of data from the retail world that in fact, we're really not treated like customers. And yet there are data that show that if we are feeling respect in the moment, of an exam with the doctor, we actually adhere more to uh, medical instructions, prescription adherence, etc. And yet, of course, as the payer, we often self-ration. So I say in the book, in short term, we make what we think are smart fiscal, F-I-S-C-A-L, decisions in the short term. But in the longer term, if we had that lump in our breast, stage one or two, if we wait too long, that could be stage three or four, and we have a poor physical outcome. So the fiscal versus the physical. And for many patients, this is the reality. New report out this week from um, published in the American Cancer Association's, um, one of their journals, about financial toxicity. And I've sat in rooms with biotech companies looking at a six-figure price new drug for various kinds of cancers and doing focus groups, traditional focus groups with women and men in different scenarios. And I see people, I've witnessed people say, I'm not going to pay what it costs, say 50% copay, because I want to leave some money to my kids and it'll wipe us out. So the financial toxicity is a real thing in this world of the patient as payer. Now at the same time, as we morph into chapter three, people really have been Amazon primed. We know now what good retail service looks like. And as Aflac polled a bunch of consumers, about 2,000 people in 2016, asking them, 
What should your health insurance experience look and feel like? 50% of people in America said it should feel like Amazon. And another 20% of people said it should feel like retail. So clearly, people are thinking that healthcare really should look this way because we've been Amazon Prime. So I morph that consumer into retail health in the next chapter because I know, as an economist, that the more patients, people are engaged in self-care and activated to participate and get smart about their own care, the better outcomes people have. And this includes not just healthy young people, but people who have chronic conditions and who are quite sick and um Drugs. The more engagement, the better outcomes. So in the new retail health, I talk about touch points for health that are outside of the expensive hospital, outside of the ER, outside of the doctor's office, where we can start to forge health in healthy communities, at the shopping mall, uh, in retail health environments, like the pharmacy, the uh, clinic if we have something non-acute. If it's pretty acute, you can do urgent care. And we're starting now to see the legacy system, hospitals and physician groups taking on risk, partnering in the community now for food, for transportation. And that speaks to a later chapter on social determinants of health. But this is just to say people really don't want to go to Pill Hill for care. They'd like to stay closer to home, more accessible, closer to work. And so we have to start thinking about retail health beyond the traditional definition of it, which is the pharmacy, uh, and look to many other touch points, including one of my favorites, the grocery store, which I wax lyrically about in the book. So you have these retail health touch points. How do we do health capture the encounter? Well, through the cloud and broadband. And so the next chapter is digital health, wearable, shareable, virtual. And we talk about how we can't do any of this without connectivity. So broadband is, in fact, a social determinant of health in my world, and so is net neutrality, which is part of this whole concept. Because if we don't have fast lanes to the N of 1 and fair lanes, we can't scale care to the person via virtual care, telehealth, and other um, platforms that help us get care where people really need it, particularly really rural areas and urban areas where people uh, can't don't have health insurance or are under insured and lack access to broadband in terms of the data plans. So digital health chapter talks about every kind of new format uh, to, to date, and these are you know morphing by the day. So as Matthew Holt said on Twitter when he first got the book, he noticed I did a one page on Amazon's efforts in health again through uh, middle of March, which is when we went to print. So it's pretty current. But he said, Jane, in two weeks, this, this uh, list is going to be old. But we <laughs> do our best to bring digital health to at least the first quarter of 2019. Now, digital health, rail, not so fast, because any kind of digital format for health, we're creating digital dust. And we love data. Big data can be mashed up and used for good for our health. And when we're sick, we tend to like sharing data so we can crowdsource cures and give each other support and participate in a data altruistic way. But 
as the data are created and moving to the cloud, so many of these flows fall out of the purview of HIPAA privacy. So my two dear friends, Devin McGraw and Ligia Ricciardi, who both spent time during the Obama administration in HHS and in the Office of National Coordinator, and they made sure I said the right thing in my privacy chapter because I needed to vet that with people who really knew the law and knew how it worked in depth. And so we cover privacy and health data insecurity, noting in the Facebook uh, Cambridge Analytica era now that um, we really don't have control of our data and we need to, which speaks to the need for each of us to own our data, lock it up, perhaps via blockchain, control it, and even be in control of monetizing it. So I talk about in the in the end of that chapter some of the new models uh, for doing so because we can't have you know health citizenship without owning our data. And this is a concept Eric Topol talked about in his last book, not the current book, but the last book, "The Patient Will See You Now." So this is a concept that some smart digital doctors are embracing too, like Eric. And finally, just before the last chapter on citizenship, I talk about the importance of social determinants of health. And I have the newest data in there from OECD on social spending versus healthcare spending, which is from late 2018. And I have a chart in there that shows the U.S. spends about the same amount, 1.1 times more on, on social than healthcare, with an uh, average lifespan of about 78 years. But France spends 2.7 times more on social services, social care, than healthcare, and their longevity is more than five years longer than America's. So I uh, quantify lifespan and this ratio of social spending to healthcare spending, and we then point to the tragedy, the latest tragedy in, tragedy in American healthcare, which are the deaths of despair from opioids, accidents, and suicides. And we find that education is very much tied to the deaths of despair for these white men in middle age who are dying at a much faster clip than any other segment in the United States. Um, we could just spend an hour talking about that, but we won't, because there's hope in that if we start to make health policies where they want, like in the environment, for transportation, and at the USDA, and in SNAP benefits, and um, every and education, of course, then we start to think about health, not just health care. And eventually, in a generation, because it's going to take a while, we can start to bend the cost curve, reduce our diabetes epidemic, get real serious about social isolation and loneliness. So in the last chapter, Becoming Health Citizen, we talk about that end game of how can we do that and really pay attention to public policy and health, not just health care, eventually evolving us into a country that joins the rest of the OECD in universal health care, where I'm not prescribing Medicare for All or any particular plan in this book. I'm asking the question at the end, do Americans believe universal health care is a civil right? And I conjecture, based on the polls, 
from October 2018, and that was the blessing of waiting to write the book till late, till late last year, early this year, that health care and health costs drove many, many people to vote in November 2018. So 2020 is going to be heavily devoted to health care in the presidential election, and I believe Americans are health citizens, should be health citizens, and we get there if we will it to be so. So there's the long-winded plot line, more than an elevator speech on the book. <laughs> yeah, quite effective, though. Thank you, Jane. And, and there's a lot there. And unfortunately, we're, we're, we're almost at the end of our chit-chat today. But uh, let me ask you this. This seems like, um, first of all, the, the alchemy with which this vision was formed, cross-cultural, dual citizenship, exposure to the EU, where I believe they're essentially – health citizens with rights and obligations that we don't have here in the United States yet, that, that this is perhaps somewhat of a prescription to get us out of our exceptionalism point of view and the fact that we might learn from others cross-culturally. Is that, is that fair? Absolutely. We can learn from our brothers and sisters around the world who do health care more cost-effectively and uh, treat health care as a right. So I also believe it could bring some civility to us if we start looking at each other in the U.S. as health citizens sharing in that vision. And and I just want to clarify that this idea of one interpretation of consumer versus citizen has could be tainted with some of the narrative we're seeing in this country around immigration. And I, and I want to be clear that that's not part of your message by distinguishing between consumer and citizen. You're talking about the passive consumption, almost in, in mindless terms of a quote mm-hmm. consumer versus a health citizen who is presumably health literate, empowered by all sorts of things, including technology, that is a more responsible participant in not just the consumption, but the access and utilization of healthcare resources. That's absolutely right. And I don't want to go down this red herring trail of immigration and all of that, which is uh, not where this goes. We're embracing Benjamin Franklin in the back of the book. We talk about the founding of America. I live in Philadelphia, so um, I'm very sensitive to that as well. I bring a lot of my personal perspective to this alchemy, as you called it, which I just love. So, and... uh... Would it be fair to say that this proscription is uniquely American because it perhaps is uniquely American, question mark? Yes, it is absolutely uniquely American. We we won't do health care like any other country, (laughs) uh, but but I do believe we'll probably step toward public-private mix to start and eventually Mm -hmm. morph into something, and it will all depend on economic growth and development in America. And if we don't invest in education and we don't invest in environment, then it's a prescription quickly for single payer. If we we, uh, try a public-private system like we see in Germany, Switzerland, the Netherlands, most countries except Canada and the U.K. are not single-payer. They have a a mix which we can leverage because we already have it. We're just not doing it smartly and in an integrated kind of way. So so let's 
say that uh, this is a, a timely offering given uh, what's going on in this country, particularly with the cross currents at the health policy level. And by the way, if the Justice Department succeeds in basically striking down the Affordable Care Act, uh, what will we be left with and how do these principles apply? Well, if we um, if the, if uh, Republicans in particular lose access to pre-existing conditions, you will quickly see uh, a, a, the moderate Republicans shifting toward loving the idea of universal health care beyond the 52, 56 percent in the polls we see in the Kaiser Family Foundation. So there will be a shift, and it's very short-sighted for the GOP to try to uh, just uh, write off the ACA uh, so quickly, because in fact, uh, we know from the polling, and most recently, two weeks ago, KFF did their latest April health tracking poll, that uh, Republicans favor covering pre-existing conditions. And it's, uh, it's funny, because if you don't have anything to hang that on, like an insurance plan, then you can't cover pre-existing conditions. So there's a real lack of health insurance literacy in this country. Yeah, who knew health care was so complicated? So, Jane, <laughs> Amen. so Jane, where can people go to learn more about the book and perhaps uh, push that order buy now button? You're so sweet. You can go to healthconsuming.com, one word, healthconsuming.com, or, of course, Amazon, both Kindle and print versions available. Well, there you have it. That will be the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank my guest and friend, Jane Saracen Khan, for her time, reasoned insights, and obvious passion. Uh, do check out Jane's work on the web by www.healthpopuli, that's health, P-O-P-U-L-I.com, including more information on her book, Health Consuming, From Health Consumer to Health Citizen. Also, be sure to follow Jane on Twitter via at Healthy Thinker and at Health Populi. For This Week in Health Innovation and Healthcare Now Radio and my colleague, Jane Saracen Khan, this is Greg Masters saying bye now. Thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.